The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Targeting a Brighter Future for Pediatric Patients with Eosinophilic Esophagitis, Ensuring Prompt Diagnosis and Exploring the Role of Biologic Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DXM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Joshua Wexler from Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to this educational activity on ensuring prompt diagnosis and exploring the role of biologic treatment in pediatric patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. So our goals for today are to ensure timely referral, accurate diagnosis, and effective co-management of children suspected to have eosinophilic esophagitis, including the transition to adult care through multidisciplinary collaboration to describe the role of underlying type 2 inflammation in the development and progression of EOE and how it corresponds to the rationale for targeted treatment, and to employ recent clinical evidence and expert recommendations in the treatment of EOE, including the integration of targeted therapy as appropriate for pediatric populations. The prevalence of EOE is increasing. You can see here a summary of a number of studies that have looked at prevalence, starting with studies before 2007 moving on to studies between 2007 and 2011, and then to studies beyond that more recently from 2011 to 2016 and beyond. And what's notable from these studies is an increasing prevalence across the board as we progress through time. EOE is a chronic disease, so it's not surprising that we see the increase in prevalence, and that's very notable from all of these studies together. Within the epidemiology of EOE, majority of cases are found in children adolescents, and adults less than 50 years of age. However, it's really important to remember that EOE can affect all ages. So we really like to take off the blinders when we think about our patients. In addition, EOE is twice as common in males than females or common in Caucasians, but at the same time, it can affect all sexes, races, ethnicities. So it's, again, really important to remember there's not a particular demographic that you should look for when you're thinking about eosinophilic esophagitis. Now, the signs and symptoms of EOE really vary among children and adults and even vary based on the age of the child as well. In infants and children, you can see symptoms like reflux, vomiting, nausea, abdominal pain. Food refusal and failure to thrive are common in young children, but not so common in older children where you tend to see more symptoms like vomiting and reflux or abdominal pain. As children progress to adolescence and, of course, in adults, we see more common typical EOE symptoms like dysphagia or trouble swallowing, the sensation of food impaction or chest pain, or reflux symptoms like heartburn or regurgitation. And despite the fact that all of these symptoms are sort of predominant within a particular age group, it's actually the case that we can see any of them at any ages. So again, it's really important to think about the fact that there's a variety of symptoms in eosinophilic esophagitis in which our patients can present and to keep our eyes open when we're seeing patients to think about this disease. You can see on this slide, talking again about symptoms, how EOE presentation varies by age. In very young children, we see things like feeding aversion or feeding disorder difficulty with taking in foods or readily taking in foods as kids get a little bit older. Now things like vomiting seem to be more prevalent as kids progress. Things like abdominal pain, but more common And then as they get older into adolescence, again, we see dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, or the sensation of food impaction. Not surprising, as things like scarring tend to develop later in the process of eosinophilic esophagitis. Let's take a quick look at a child with EOE 
whose symptoms started when she was an infant. Brianna's symptoms started around eight weeks old. She um, had trouble feeding. She was labeled failure to thrive. Um, She could not keep a lot of formulas and breast milk down. She started having diarrhea and then constipation, um, kind of back and forth that we couldn't get under control, and um, a lot of acid reflux. So those were her first symptoms. So these are some typical symptoms for an infant, but let's talk about some behaviors that individuals may exhibit that get a little bit confusing when you're thinking about feeding behaviors and how they may be adaptive to deal with the symptoms. So we really like the mnemonic IMPACT. IMPACT really describes the adaptive behaviors that can oftentimes mask classical symptoms of EOE. These are the symptoms where patients have adjusted their behaviors really to avoid the symptoms. They may drink extra fluids to facilitate the passage of solid food, or we say imbibe fluids to pass those solids. They may modify foods by cutting them into small pieces. They may have prolonged meal times. This is particularly common in children. They may avoid harder textures like meats or even dry textures like breads. They may chew excessively or meticulous masticators, or they may turn away pills and tablets. They don't like to swallow pills and tablets. And each of these symptoms can be present in isolation, or they may be a collection of them. And the patients may even tell you they don't have difficulty swallowing, or they don't feel food stuck. And that's particularly because they're doing these things to avoid that. The clinical presentation of EOE, it really can vary depending on the child's age and their ability to report symptoms. Therefore, a high index of suspicion for EOE is warranted because children and teenagers may develop coping strategies around eating. This is really, really important to remember. People may even want to avoid particular social settings where they eat. A kid may not want to eat in the cafeteria at school. People may not like going out to eat with their friends. These adaptive behaviors may actually help them avoid having the symptoms This is very important to screen for when you're thinking about trying to understand what's going on with your patient and whether EOE is actually the diagnosis that's ongoing. Well, not surprisingly, diagnostic delay in EOE is common. The time between symptom onset of EOE and diagnosis ranged from 1.2 to 3.5 years in children and 3 to 8 years in adults in this study from Shaheen et al. The findings from a study of 705 patients with EOE from age 6 months to 65 years, the time gap increased as the patient age diagnosis increased. The median time from symptom onset to diagnosis was four years in adults, two years in patients age 11 to 17, and one year in children less than 11 years. And in particular, that's not surprising because with very young children, we're very quick to pursue a workup as oftentimes things present with very significant symptoms. But oftentimes as kids get older, those adaptive behaviors become more common. They may be avoiding things to limit the symptoms, may be a bit more subtle, until the symptoms become significant enough with food impaction that they actually present. Well, early diagnosis is very, very important. Uncontrolled EOE can lead to esophageal narrowings or stricture. Of course, this is the main complication of EOE. And of patients with diagnostic delay, particularly in adults, 57% in this particular study had food impaction and 52% had stricture. This is really common to find in adults. In children, we tend to find more rings. This is thought to be the process whereby the narrowing starts and ultimately develops into a stricture, and these rings can occur at varying degrees, but are really thought to contribute to the difficulty with swallowing. In addition, uncontrolled EOE can lead to feeding dysfunction, especially relevant for young children. 
in this particular study, by Mukata et al., 14 to 60% of patients with EOE had feeding dysfunction, and 21% of children with EOE and feeding disorders also had failure to thrive. So failure to thrive, it's not overly common in children. It's not what we would expect to see in the vast majority of children, but it does oftentimes occur. And what's challenging with failure to thrive is that it oftentimes requires prolonged remission to really see improvements. In addition, uncontrolled EOE without question can lead to negative impact on quality of life. And in fact, to some extent, even sometimes the treatments can impact quality of life as well, but quality of life really tends to improve as patients are treated. And that's very important to remember. The patients require chronic therapy and that's going to help improve their quality of life chronically. So one of the things to really think very significantly about is what role are you going to play in managing EOE and finding EOE? The pediatrician actually has a very significant role. In fact, much of the patients I now see come directly from the pediatrician. Pediatricians are screening more and more for symptoms. And as they find symptoms, they're actually referring to gastroenterologists to screen the patients for EOE. And any child with suspected EOE, really with any of the symptoms we talked about, not just dysphagia, but any symptom that you really can't explain that may involve the upper GI tract requires evaluation by a gastroenterologist. And from the perspective of gastroenterologists, undoubtedly we are highly likely to perform endoscopy and take multiple biopsies of the esophagus, the stomach, and the small intestine to work up these symptoms. This is required ultimately to establish a diagnosis. Once we make a diagnosis, now it's off to the races as far as management goes. Because EOE is a chronic disease, it requires long-term therapy, a multidisciplinary approach, and regular follow-up. We're going to periodically do endoscopies where we're going to get a chance to assess visually what's going on with the esophagus. We'll talk about that in just a bit, along with what's going on in terms of the inflammation using our biopsies. Let's go back to our patient and her mom and hear what their experience was like in getting diagnosed. We were very fortunate. Our pediatrician um, had a very good relationship with the GI doctor that we see now. Uh, we did go through a couple different allergists to, you know, rule out a lot of her um, allergies. Some of them we did not click with. They either didn't have um, much knowledge with eosinophilic esophagitis or they just weren't a good fit for us. Um, we now have an allergist and a GI that we see every six months and they work together, they communicate together. So I would say uh, we were pretty lucky finding the right GI for us pretty quick. So for a long time in EOE, process of diagnosis involved the response to a PPI. And this changed in 2018 with the updated EOE diagnostic algorithm as part of AGREE. And what we did in AGREE is remove the PPI from the diagnostic process. So now we have a patient that presents clinically with symptoms of eosinophilic esophagitis. We perform endoscopy with biopsies of the esophagus. And using those biopsies with review of a pathologist, we find that there's at least 15 eosinophils per high power field. That's something that you want a pathologist to be able to do, is to count those eosinophils and report the peak eosinophils within the epithelial regions. That's something that pathologists are typically well-trained to do, 
but oftentimes need to be reminded how important it is in making a diagnosis to provide that in the report. In addition, we're going to evaluate for non-eosinophil esophagitis disorders that cause or potentially contribute to esophageal eosinophilia. And once we have put all that together, we're going to make a diagnosis of EOE. Well, the gold standard, of course, for diagnosis is endoscopy with biopsies. And when I put the camera in, it's very common that I will see a number of inflammatory findings, which you see on the left, that is the paleness or edema, the white plaques or white dots, oftentimes make you think of candida or yeast or white exudate. These are little clumps of eosinophils, as well as longitudinal furrows. These vertical lines that appear are the furrows. As the disease progresses and you get more scarring, you will see things like rings, and we also talked about stricture, and we'll look at some more images on the next page, but these are characteristic findings of the scarring as well. Within the EOE field, we have an endoscopic reference scoring system that has been validated in both kids and adults now. This describes the five cardinal findings of EOE, two of which are fibrosynodic findings, three of which are inflammatory findings. So the inflammatory findings are edema, exudate, and furrows. The edema involves the loss of vascularity and paleness. The exudate involves those white dots and just varies in its severity. The furrows are these vertical lines, and depending on the depth of the vertical lines will determine the severity as well. We then have the fibrosynodic findings, the rings, or somewhat looks like a trachea to some extent, depending on how severe they are, grade three rings being inability to pass a scope or a stricture. And to some extent, Patients where you have grade three rings where you can't pass a scope, or even to some extent grade two, they have stenosis or narrowing of the esophagus and may in fact be thought of as a stricture to some extent as well. Well, of course, we want to take lots of biopsies. These are two great examples of normal on the left and active EOE on the right. So in the normal of esophagus, we have those basal cells at the bottom. We have the lamina propria right below it. That's the subepithelial layer. And then we have numerous squamous epithelial cells, typically thought of as being three times as many squamous cells to basal cells, and then our lamina propria below that. Well, in EOE, those basal cells become proliferative. There's more of them. And that's why we call it basal cell or basal zone hyperplasia. You see very little squamous cells now, and you even see some immune cells infiltrating into the lamina propria as well. Now you see lots of those pink or red dots. Those are the eosinophils. Sometimes you see clumps of them and they can even form eosinophilic microabscesses. And we want the pathologist to count those eosinophils to tell us whether that inflammation is ongoing or not. We also feel very strongly that the degree of basal cell hyperplasia is a very good measure of the extent of inflammation. But the gold standard, of course, is counting the eosinophils. So for making a diagnosis of EOE, it's really important to take lots of biopsies. And I myself probably take more than the typical. We take them from the upper, middle, and lower part of the esophagus. But the recommendation is at least three biopsies from the lower part of the esophagus and three biopsies from the upper part of the esophagus. And this is really thought to be the minimum that would be beneficial to identify the condition. And of course, one thing that's really important is anytime you see an endoscopic abnormality, such as furrows, or exudates, you really want to target this area. And several publications have shown that this is going to increase the yield of finding inflammation most significantly. Okay, we're going to change gears for a bit here and talk about the transition to adult care. 
So transitioning to adult care can be very challenging. So these are the results of an online survey that examined patient perceptions of the challenges faced by patients with eosinophilic esophagitis in the United States during the transition to adult health care. So 67 patients with EOE reported the degree to which they struggled with various aspects of EOE management related to food or time and medical aspects throughout the transition. So you can see significant issues that the patients reported. Essentially what you're looking at on this graph in red are the patients that reported struggling significantly. As it gets more closer to blue, it's less of a struggle. So in the dark blue, you're seeing the patients that handled it very well. So as children transition to adult care, they're taking on a number of responsibilities, and these significant responsibilities can have a very significant effect on their ability to manage their diet in particular, which is, I think, a big theme that really stands out on this particular slide. In addition, there can be a number of issues around how to manage the condition from a medical perspective. And you see very similar numbers here in terms of the number of patients that have either struggled significantly or struggled somewhat. Around one and a half to four and a half percent of patients struggled somewhat with these particular issues, and around six to 24 percent of patients somewhat struggled. So you can see here that there's a number of recommendations around how to facilitate the transition to adult care, beginning in the late to early adolescent years, transitioning into mid-adolescence, and then into late adolescence and beyond. I really try super hard to some extent earlier than this, usually starting around 12, 13, 14 years old, to make sure that my patient begins to become empowered about their disease, that they're having a role in making decisions, that they're really beginning to understand what is the disease, why do they have to treat it, what medications that they're on. If they don't treat it, what's going to happen to them? If they're not taking their medicine, what do we expect to participate in the decision-making process about what therapies they're on? This is really valuable between those ages of 13 and 18 to empower the patient to begin to take responsibilities. This is a patient's job, but I think as a provider, you have to encourage it. On the pediatric care provider side, we want to introduce the concept of transfer of care develop an individualized transition care plan, provide resources to assist in development of skills for healthcare independence. We're going to perform ongoing critical milestone transition readiness assessment and identify areas for improvement and address those areas. Now, as they get into late adolescence and early young adulthood, we're going to need our patients to assume responsibility of the care, including scheduling appointments, filing prescriptions, and communicating with the adult provider. And one way that I think this is, can really be achieved is through telehealth. And in my case, I oftentimes am seeing patients that are 18, 19, 20 years old through telehealth where it is just the patient on the other end. Maybe they're in their dorm room or something like that. And you get the chance to really interact directly with that patient without their parent there. The patient is 18 and beyond and really help them understand how to transition their care. For an adult care provider, they're going to need to start reviewing the medical records as the patients are getting older and facilitate an interaction with the pediatric care providers and then ultimately that transition. So there's a number of aspects that we think about when we think about EOE as a disease. Undoubtedly, there's comorbid conditions like atopy, there's environmental factors, there's specific demographics like gender, there's the inheritance in which specific genetic variants play a role, and of course there's a cellular pathology that's critical to thinking about EOE as a disease and ultimately how we're going to treat it. 
So atopic diseases are incredibly common in patients with EOE, but as you can appreciate, not 100% of patients have them. In our population, allergic rhinitis is easily the most common. In fact, we even see even more patients with allergic rhinitis than is pictured here. But in this particular study, about 60% of the patients had allergic rhinitis. That was similar in children and adults. About 40 to 50% of the patients had asthma, and about 25 to 60% of the patients had atopic dermatitis. In this particular study, food allergy was very common. Now, in our patients, I think it probably represents about 15 to 30% of the patients, and I'm specifically talking about the patients that have IgE-mediated food allergy to require an EpiPen. It is very common to have atopic diseases you can appreciate. In this particular study, 78% reported at least one, 48% reported having greater than one, 22% reported having three conditions, allergic rhinitis, asthma, and atopic dermatitis. And a history of food allergy or atopic dermatitis is associated with a significantly shorter time between symptom onset and diagnosis. So, of course, this is going to make for a much quicker assessment for EOE as our patients are going to present with symptoms of esophageal dysfunction in the setting of these atopic comorbidities, and it's going to really raise the radar. And this is somewhat good and somewhat bad because we really need to continue to think about EOE in these non-atopic patients. But of course, when we see the patient with food allergy in particular, it's going to be right on our radar to think about the EOE as a disease process. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the cellular pathology, the immunopathogenesis of EOE. It is incredibly important to think about because it really frames the therapies that we think about quite significantly. So EOE really starts most commonly with food passing through the esophagus. Now, aeroallergens can do this as well, but food is the most significant factor to drive EOE. Food gets picked up by antigen-presenting cells. Oftentimes, there's a release of things like TSLP or IL-33, which are considered to be alarmins. This essentially wakes up the T cells and helps skew them towards being T-helper type 2 cells or allergic inflammatory T cells. Type 2 T cells produce interleukin-13, they're supported by the molecule interleukin-4. They don't really produce IL-4. Other cells produce IL-4 that then get onto the type 2 T cell and really support it being a type 2 T cell. That interleukin-13 is really a critical cytokine that comes out of the T helper type 2 cell. can also be released by other cells like mast cells as well. One of the key aspects of interleukin-13, which comes out of the T cell, is it gets onto the epithelial cells and it causes that basal cell hyperplasia. In addition, it causes those epithelial cells to release the chemokine eotaxin-3, which is critical in recruiting eosinophils. So interleukin-13, released by a T-cell, is ultimately a hallmark cytokine in eosinophilic esophagitis that contributes to the remodeling of the esophagus in addition to its effects on the epithelium. It also has significant effects on smooth muscle and on fibroblasts, and through this action, affects the remodeling process, development of scarring, and ultimately the symptoms of EOE. IL-13 is incredibly important in the things that we see on a biopsy, like basal cell hyperplasia, dilated intercellular spaces, as well as the immune infiltrate. This is really a critical, critical cytokine. And you can see there's been a number of therapeutics that have been developed to try to target particular pathways. Some of these are in clinical trials. Some of them have completed clinical trials and are no longer being utilized for EOE. Some of them have passed clinical trials and are now FDA approved. Some of them are therapies that are not FDA approved, but we may use them as well, like proton pump inhibitors. And these all work through different mechanisms to potentially treat EOE. Okay, now let's take a closer look at the role of type 2 inflammation in EOE with this short 3D animated clip. 
Eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, is primarily driven by underlying type 2 inflammation, characterized by immune dysregulation and epithelial barrier dysfunction. Mediators of type 2 inflammation include eosinophils, mast cells, Th2 cells that produce the cytokines IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, IL-C2s, and IgE-producing B cells. Th2 cells are a subpopulation of CD4-positive T cells, which secrete IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13 and stimulate the type 2 response. IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5 are key drivers of type 2 inflammation in EOE. IL-4 and IL-13 also contribute to the activation of mast cells and basophils, leading to the release of several inflammatory mediators. IL-4 and IL-13 drive epithelial barrier dysfunction, facilitating the entry of antigens that can worsen inflammation and increase access to allergens and pathogens across the epithelial barrier. They then propagate local inflammation, resulting in remodeling and fibrosis, such as furrows, distinct rings, edema, exudates, strictures, and increased smooth muscle contraction. IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5 also contribute to eosinophil activation and trafficking to tissues. IL-5 drives eosinophil differentiation in the bone marrow. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that binds to the shared alpha subunit of the IL-4 receptor and therefore inhibits IL-4 and IL-13 signaling. By inhibiting IL-4 and IL-13 signaling, type 2 inflammation is reduced decreasing eosinophil count and improving symptoms of EOE, including difficulty swallowing, for patients. Okay, now we're going to explore the how, when, and why of using targeted therapy in younger patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. So when we think about treat-to-target in EOE, there's a number of factors we need to consider. We certainly need to consider the symptoms. Our critical goal in treating EOE is the resolution of symptoms that we truly believe are due to eosinophilic esophagitis. As I mentioned before, EOE can oftentimes be comorbid with other conditions like GERD, hiatal hernia, you may have upper GI tract conditions leading to dyspepsia, you may have postseasonal drip. It's certainly important to think about whether these are factors in driving the symptoms. In addition, you may have symptoms related to the inflammation. There can also, of course, be symptoms related to deep tissue scarring, fibrocinosis, leading to those rings and strictures, and how we address those symptoms is very important. As we're thinking about treat to target, it's critical to think about the idea that we're going to resolve that esophageal eosinophilic inflammation. In addition, I really think about that remodeling process as well, particularly within the epithelium. So resolving that basal cell hyperplasia, that's the reactivity of the esophageal structural cells to the inflammation. As we resolve the esophageal inflammation, we should see resolution of basal cell hyperplasia. And the resolution of both of these things together really tells us that the histologic activity is improving. In addition, I like to see improvement in the endoscopic activity. I call this mucosal healing as we see improvement in the inflammatory features. Resolution of the edema, the anxiety, and the furrows really tells us that that tissue is being healed, particularly the improvement in the furrows and the edema really tells us that that tissue is being healed. Further, we want to see an increase in esophageal diameter. For us pediatric gastroenterologists, using things like the endoflip can be very helpful as that can be very difficult to discern, but that will definitely be something that correlates with an improvement in the sensation of food getting stuck in our patients. 
And so this is really valuable. And it may be the case that our patients require dilation to feel better. Certainly things like scars may not be entirely amenable to anti-inflammatory treatment. So it's not uncommon that I dilate patients to help improve their symptoms, but that accompanies anti-inflammatory therapy. So here's a suggested approach to management that's been published by Sauer et al. in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. So you can see it starts with esophageal eosinophilia, greater than 15 eosinophils per high-powered field, ruling out other particular conditions that we talked about already, and then a shared decision-making approach. Proton pump inhibitors are considered the initial approach or first-line therapy to a large extent. They have a very low cost and an excellent safety profile. However, only 30 to 50% of patients are PPI responsive, where we see resolution of the symptoms and the inflammation. And one thing that we find very helpful is twice daily dosing. Seems that this is very beneficial, particularly as some of our patients harbor mutations in CYP2C19, part of the P450 system that alters the metabolism of the PPIs. Twice daily dosing is very effective at overcoming their ability to metabolize the drug faster than we would like. In addition, there's a number of therapies that are considered second-line therapies, although it's considered acceptable to use them as first-line therapies as well. And this is things like food elimination diet, swallowed steroids, and dupilumab. So food elimination diet can have a high cost for some patients, and certainly there's considerations in terms of maintaining macro and micronutrients, but I think for an appropriately motivated patient is a really good idea. We find that this is a challenge for patients with food allergy that are already eliminating a number of foods or patients that have significant feeding aversion. That can be very challenging as well. And for younger patients, diet therapy may require things like nasogastric tube or G-tube to help support nutrition with formula. However, this is something that needs to be considered on an individual patient basis. In addition, there's swallowed steroids. The most commonly used are fluticasone, meter dose inhaler. In older patients, 220 micrograms, two puffs swallowed twice a day. In younger patients, we use 110 micrograms, two puffs swallowed twice a day, or the budesonide slurry. In younger patients, in very young patients, I will use 0.25 milligrams twice a day. In somewhat older patients, half milligram. And as the patients get into more adolescent ages, one milligram twice a day. And for the slurry, we tend to mix it with Splenda, honey, or pancake syrup. Those are the most commonly used, but I even have patients that use other thickening agents, typically two and a half to five mLs of the syrup or two to three packets of Splenda. And most recently, we have FDA approval of Dupilumab. Dupilumab is 300 milligrams sub-Q per week. This needs to be considered on an individual patient basis to determine what is the most optimal therapy. So now we're going to talk a little bit about diet therapy. Diet therapy comes in a number of flavors, of course, as diet therapy was originally utilized. It was elemental diet. This was using elemental formulas with removal of nearly all foods from the diet. This was, of course, very challenging for children in particular, as took a number of endoscopies to identify the triggers. The benefit of the diet was that it had very high efficacy. Nearly 98% of patients were responsive to this diet. However, it took a very large number of endoscopies to find food triggers along with safe foods. So as time has progressed, we've moved from the six-food elimination diet to the four-food elimination diet, or even the one or two-food elimination diet. The most common theme among all of these diets is that cow's milk or dairy is the most common food trigger of EOE. And when we're doing these diets, typically it's six to eight weeks of initiating the diet followed by endoscopy. If the endoscopy shows ongoing inflammation, it makes sense at that point to remove additional foods and this step-up modality 
has been published on and appears to be very effective for patients. Patients have increasing degrees of responsiveness with increasing foods removed from the diet. And this is considered a preferred method over directed elimination where we do testing like allergy testing, like blood testing or skin prick or patch testing, as this modality has not been proven to be effective at identifying specific food triggers of EOE. In children, we commonly use just dairy elimination, cow's milk elimination. It's incredibly important to have the patient meet with a dietitian to review how to properly eliminate the food, how to avoid cross-contamination, and how to maintain macro and micronutrients in the diet that are eliminated with that particular food or foods being removed from the diet. Now, once a patient has responded to food elimination, we're going to start putting foods back in the diet. And there's different ways to do this. One of the most common is single food reintroduction, followed by six to eight weeks with a scope culminating to assess for inflammation. The patient has recurrence of the inflammation, we would want to pull that food out and rescope them to confirm that the inflammation goes away. That would ultimately confirm there's a food trigger. It is not uncommon that gastroenterologists will try to introduce multiple foods at a time, one or two foods at a time, followed by endoscopy. This, of course, can be a challenge because if you find inflammation, you may not know which specific food caused it, but can also have the benefit of getting foods back in the diet more quickly as milk, of course, is the most common trigger. And of course, that's going to be a food where we want to do it by itself, followed by a scope to assess that. Proton pump inhibitors. Proton pump inhibitor, initially, as we talked about, was a therapy for GERD. In fact, EOE was originally thought to be a variant of GERD as we started to identify patients that were non-responsive to acid suppression therapy that were now responsive to removal of things from the diet. This is how we identified EOE as a disease. And initially, PPIs were considered the diagnostic criteria. You had to fail PPI followed by the finding of inflammation. You were found to have EOE. But we eventually realized that PPIs were really just a therapy for a variant of EOE that looked very similar, similar endoscopic findings, similar findings molecularly, similar findings under the microscope, the only difference being that the patients had a response to treatment. And so in 2018, PPIs became a therapy for EOE, and that is how they're utilized today. Current guidelines is that PPIs should be used over no treatment. And the response rate varies between studies, but generally considered to be around 30 to 40% or so. Now, the mechanism for this is not entirely clear. It may be that there's a component of an anti-acid or anti-secretory effect or anti-inflammatory mechanism. There's a number of studies that have looked at the ability of acid medicine to shut off inflammation in the esophageal epithelium, its ability to particularly turn off signals in which T-cells may be driving the inflammation. Topical corticosteroids, well, the AGA Joint Task Force guidelines were that topical corticosteroids should be used over no treatment. This was a strong recommendation. However, it's very important to note that there's not a formulation that's currently approved by the FDA for treatment. Histologic remission rates, where you find less than 15 eosinophils per high power field, vary depending on the formulation or delivery, but they're generally considered to be around 60 to 80% or so. And some studies have seen higher and some studies have seen lower. This the way in which the steroids work is they're topically coating the esophagus. They generally are considered safe as a therapy, and they're certainly safer, much safer than systemic corticosteroids. Systemic corticosteroids is something we really try to avoid in our patients. Systemic corticosteroids certainly will work to treat the inflammation, but long-term have very, very significant side effects. 
Now, the topical corticosteroids are not without any potential side effects. We do see in about 10% of patients a soft chill candida infection. It's very rare to see, but you can see decreased bone density. I've certainly seen before adrenal insufficiency. This is something we screen for. And we've had patients that had required hydrocortisone in the past for treatment and then decreased linear growth velocity. This is certainly a concern in a young child. So the suggested approach to management is optimization. The goals include systematic endoscopic and histologic remission, as we mentioned, ideally monotherapy. So we really want to assess individual therapies. And I think it's always challenging to put a patient on two therapies and then do an endoscopy because you really don't know what therapy works. And then not just starting therapy, but continuing therapy. This is incredibly important. All right, let's again take a look at our patient and her mom as they talk about their experiences with treatment, including dietary restrictions and managing EOE. So whenever she was first diagnosed, we went straight to the majestinide slurry. Um, That was rough. It was not easy for her to take. It does not taste good. Uh, we would mix it with honey. We tried it with Hershey's syrup, all, all the little tricks that, that I read about. Um, she took that probably for two years straight, and she was not growing. So that was that was my first um, my first flag to me. I'm like, there's got to be another way. There's got to be something else. What can we do? We were always very strict with the food, with the elimination diet. And I would say that that's probably been the best. Um, it's been the best treatment for us. The uh, the slurry, I was very concerned about. So we we got off of that. She still takes um, a daily PPI, and she takes uh, Montelukast, and um, she takes the anxiety medication as well since. You know, as she's gotten older, she's she's had some more anxiety coming along with it. So, we I used to have sixteen allergies whenever I was first diagnosed. Um, I can't name off exactly what all of those sixteen were, but the ones I currently have are peanuts, tree nuts, dairy, wheat, fish, shellfish, beef, and corn. Yeah. So when she when we first found out that she was um that she had EOE she did avoid 16 foods that made it very tough um we got very creative in the kitchen i remember going to the grocery store right after the diagnosis and finding out the things that that we need to avoid um i spent 2 hours in the grocery store at one point i sat down on the floor and cried I, I taught myself to cook then because we kind of had no choice, but I wanted to make sure that she could enjoy everything. So whether her, the donuts that I made her didn't look like donuts, they were donuts. You know, um, she never had pizza before, so we made homemade pizza. She's never had true ice cream. You know, we made we made that out of bananas and you know, avocado and chocolate. And um, we got very creative. And, you know, it's hard, but it you, it becomes a lifestyle, just like any diet. We've done a lot of food trials. Um, there's only one food that we have failed, and that was corn. So we now have eight foods back in her diet. 
So now we're going to talk about biologics for EOE. Who are our patients that we would consider for biologics? Well, certainly patients that are corticosteroid refractory or corticosteroid intolerance. We talked about the adverse effects. But in addition to that, we oftentimes see that patients with swallowed steroids, they may have significant improvement in ELE, but not resolution of the disease. In addition, the concept for targeting specific allergic pathways can be very beneficial. Systemic treatment of multiple forms of atopy. So it's very common that we'll see patients that have poorly controlled asthma, poorly controlled eczema, or ongoing chronic rhinitis. And of course, they're going to benefit with regards to these diseases and now be able to limit the number of medications they're taking. They may be on inhaled steroids, topical steroids, intranasal steroids, and they may be able to limit these depending on their response to biologics. And this is, of course, something where as a gastroenterologist, you're going to have to work with their other doctors to ensure appropriate management of those conditions. And then, of course, there's the incredible benefit that this is not twice daily therapy or daily therapy anymore. This now becomes weekly therapy, and that's a huge benefit for a biologic. I think the other condition where it's really valuable to think about biologics, and there's been some literature to discuss this, is fibrostomatic EOE. So when you have patients that have very significant fibrostenosis, or what we would say is very advanced or moderate to severe disease, these patients are probably appropriate for biologics as well. And I think there's a significant amount of literature thinking about this now. So first we'll talk about dupilumab. This is a drug that targets interleukin-4 receptor alpha. So interleukin-4 receptor alpha is important for two key molecules, both IL-4 and IL-13. So for IL-4, this is the type 1 receptor. This is found on immune cells like B cells, T cells, monocytes, or eosinophils, as well as structural cells like fibroblasts. This is the receptor for interleukin-4. This is where the interleukin-4 receptor complexes with the gamma chain and leads to downstream signaling that is important for IL-4's function. In addition, IL-4 receptor alpha is important for IL-13 signaling through complexing with IL-13-RA1. This is considered to be the type 2 receptor found in more structural cells like epithelial cells with muscle cells, as well as some immune cells as well. And so dupilumab, because of this action, inhibits signaling of both interleukin-4 and 13 by binding to the interleukin-4 receptor alpha. It's currently approved in the United States for treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, age 6 plus months, moderate to severe asthma, age 6 plus years, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, or perigonodularis, age 18 plus. And in May of 2022, it became FDA approved for eosinophilic esophagitis for patients age 12 plus that were 40 kilos or more, which is 88 pounds. And dupilumab was recently approved for children age 1 to 11. Okay, we're going to talk about the phase 3 trial in which dupilumab was studied to determine its efficacy. So this was a two-part trial. In part A of the trial involved assessing dupilumab 300 milligrams weekly versus placebo in part A, or part B was randomization of 300 milligrams weekly versus 300 milligrams every other week versus placebo. And in part C, the patients that were on placebo went to 300 milligrams weekly from part A and from part B to part C. The patients that were on 300 milligrams every other week stayed on every other week, and the patients that were on placebo were randomized to 300 milligrams weekly or 300 milligrams every other week. So it's important to know that the patients that were in this study, again, 12 and up, these patients were screened with the dysphagia symptom questionnaire. And this is a questionnaire that assesses the frequency and severity of eosinophilic esophagitis symptoms, particularly along the lines of dysphagia-associated symptoms, symptoms associated with difficulty swallowing. All these patients had to have at least two episodes of dysphagia per week for at least two weeks during the screening process. Randomization was stratified according to age group, 
and current PPI use. Patients receiving PPIs at baseline continue to receive the same or similar dose throughout treatment. One thing that's really valuable to think about with the patients in this study is a number of them had scarring and a number of them had self-reported topical corticosteroid use failure. So now we're going to talk about the change in symptoms from dupelumab at weeks 24 and 52 in the Liberty EOV TREAT study. So on the left, you can see a significant reduction in symptoms from dupelumab 300 milligrams weekly, but not 300 milligrams every other week during the initial part of the study. And on the right, you can see that 300 milligrams weekly had similar improvement when the patients went from placebo to dupelumab as the patients that remained on dupelumab weekly. So what we see here is a significant improvement in symptoms with dupilumab weekly, no significant improvement in symptoms in patients on every other week dupilumab, and improvement in symptoms in patients switching from placebo to dupilumab weekly. Next, we're going to look at histologic remission. And in this particular study, histologic remission was defined as actually having less than six eosinophils per high part field. So a very significant degree to which the patients were in remission. What you can appreciate is, is that the patients that were on dupilumab weekly about 60% of them had histologic remission compared to a very small number in placebo. And that was actually very similar for the patients on weekly versus every other week therapy. When the patients switched from placebo to dupilumab in the graph on the right, you can see that a very similar number achieved remission as those that remained on dupilumab. Next, we're going to look at the adverse effects. So adverse effects were reported quite commonly with dupilumab, However, the vast majority of them were very mild and self-resolving. The common adverse events that were reported in the dupilumab barb included injection site reaction, which included redness, pain, or swelling at the site of injection, or nasopharyngitis. And none of the adverse events or serious adverse events that were assessed were considered by trial investigators to be related to the trial regimen, with the exception of one serious adverse event of systemic inflammatory response syndrome patient was continued to be followed in the trial and the event did not recur. This is a very important thing to note that serious adverse events with dupilumab are incredibly rare and this is considered to be an overall very safe medication. So now we're going to look at the results from the phase 3 kids trial of children aged 1 to 11 years. So in this trial there was weight based dosing of the children either at a higher exposure regimen or a lower exposure regimen, along with placebo during Part A. Then during Part B, the patients that were on placebo were randomized to the higher exposure or the lower exposure regimen. And then in Part C, which was an open-label extension period, every patient was given the higher exposure regimen. Phase 3 KIDS was designed to evaluate efficacy, safety, and tolerability of dupilumab versus placebo in patients aged 1 to 11 years with active VOE unresponsive to PPIs. And this is important to note. Both the trial in adolescents and adults and the trial now in younger kids has evaluated patients that were unresponsive to PPIs. We talked about the patients being randomized to the higher or lower regimen. So importantly, dupilumab improves histologic and endoscopic features of EOE. And so you can see that compared to placebo, a very significant number of patients have achieved histologic remission. 67% achieved remission compared to 3% in placebo. So very significant improvement in the histologic scoring system. This is a validated scoring system used to judge the eosinophil inflammation as well as the structural changes. There's a grade and a stage which refers to the peak severity and the diffuseness, and a very significant improvement occurred. There's also a, an absolute change in the endoscopic abnormalities, which is the EREFs. You can see a very significant improvement compared to placebo. Also, 
there was a numerical improvement in the proportion of days with greater than one EOE sign. So there was a reduction in symptoms, although it wasn't significant. And there was a change in body weight for age percentile of 3% versus 0.29%. So your patients appeared to gain more weight. The overall adverse events were 79% for dupilumab, 91% for placebo, but none of these adverse events led to study drug discontinuation. So again, incredibly safe drug and very overall minimal side effects. In this trial, the types of side effects included things like COVID-19, rash, headache, viral gastritis, or diarrhea. They were all very, very mild and not considered to be severe adverse events, things that were able to get better. None of the cases of COVID-19 required hospitalization. So the criteria for consideration of dupilumab for EOE treatment, it can be considered for first-line use. Of course, we talked about PPIs being first-line therapy for EOE, and that's partly related to the fact that PPIs were used in the trial. So many insurance companies oftentimes like to see PPI failure, but in fact, because it's FDA approved, dupilumab can be considered for first-line therapy. We've talked about it being used in patients with comorbid apoptotic conditions. I mentioned that patients with severe fibrocinosis are good patients for dupilumab, as well as patients that are trying to avoid dietary restriction or swallow topical corticosteroids. For step-up therapy, when patients fail other therapies, difficult to treat EOE, or patients with very significant failure to thrive. Obviously, we talked about removing food from patients like this is not ideal. Patients with severe weight loss, this may be a challenge. The frequent use of rescue therapies, or again, we talked about severe fibrocinosis, clinically significant strictures or narrow caliber. Again, as I mentioned, the idea that there's very significant narrowing, there's some phase two trial data that supports dupilumab as improving esophageal diameter. And then, of course, any patient that has adverse events from existing therapies. There's other drugs that are currently in trials that are being assessed for EOE. So, sindacamab or RPC4046 is an anti-IL-13 drug. So, this is a recombinant humanized monoclonal IgG1K antibody that's highly selective for IL-13. It inhibits the binding of IL-13 to the IL-13 RA1 and RA2 receptors, and it is administered as a weekly subcutaneous injection. So in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in 99 patients age 18 to 65 years, 16-week treatment of RPC4046, 180 milligrams versus 360 milligrams versus placebo, primary endpoint was the change in eosinophil count. You can appreciate there's a significant improvement in the eosinophils in both arms of the trial where the patients received the medication compared to the placebo and also a significant improvement in the endoscopic reference score, the endoscopic abnormalities as well. There's phase three studies still ongoing. For this particular drug, it's not currently FDA-approved for EOE. There's other drugs that are now emerging that are entering clinical trials. One is tezapalumab, which is anti-TSLP, and the trial is called CROSSING. The other is barzivolumab. This is an anti-KIT therapy, so this depletes mast cells. There's a phase two trial called EVOLVE ongoing. All right, let's take a last look at our patient as they talk about considering biologic therapy as well as some other resources they found to be helpful in their journey with eosinophilic esophagitis. One thing we've been considering is biologic therapy. Then I would be able to have, I wouldn't be able to have peanuts or tree nuts and not dairy, but I would be able to have all those other things. And at first I was really scared about trying that because it's, it would just be so different to 
have all those different foods that I've been avoiding since I was little. Um, but it would definitely open up a lot. And um, we won't be able to do that until I'm 12. But we're, that's some, definitely something we're thinking of. I think, um, you know, we've had several conversations with our healthcare providers. And then we've had conversations on the side. And, you know, something that Brianna said to me is, Mom, like, this is all I know. I, I, don't, I don't know how, I don't know how it would be to go to a restaurant and order whatever I want. Um, we don't go out to eat. And if we do, it's there's one or two things that we know are safe. It definitely would make life easier to some extent, um, but it, it would definitely be a different, yeah. a whole different ballgame, right? There is the Cured Foundation, and there's a walk each year where people with EOE can get together, and I think that's really helped me because, I mean, I don't really know anyone who has the same disease as me, anyone who really understands it. So it's good to be able to, like, meet other people that are going through the same kind of thing. Yeah, the Cured Foundation has been a lot of help. Um, I've met a lot of people through the Cured Foundation, um, made a lot of friends, and, you know, doing the Facebook groups online, um, there's some eosinophilic esophagitis, like mama groups that we talk about recipes and, you know, doctor's visits and 504 ideas and plans. And um, I would say AppFed has also been helpful as well. Okay, so in summary, EOE continues to increase worldwide in terms of its incidence and prevalence. The EOE diagnostic criteria have been updated the diagnosis no longer includes a PPI trial. As far as the diagnosis, patients should have appropriate symptoms in the setting of esophageal eosinophilia that does not have another contributing cause significantly responsible for the inflammation. Again, we talked about the fact that EOE can be comorbid with other conditions that do cause esophageal eosinophilia. Symptoms and eating behaviors are often difficult to discern in children and adults because they vary, as well as adaptive behaviors that can mask symptoms. EOE is a progressive disease that goes from being predominantly inflammatory to fibrosynodic in most, but not all patients, and that early diagnosis is critical to reduce the complications. Targeted biologic therapy with Dupelmab is now available for patients one year of age and older with EOE, and others are in development. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you found this program to be useful as you continue to care for pediatric patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Campaign Urging Research for Eosinophilic Disease. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DXM860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.